morning, y'all. Didn't he look like Mr. Rogers? Some of y'all don't know who Mr. Rogers is, but there's a new movie out, and it's about Mr. Rogers. Um, anyway, uh, I want to do two or three quick things before we get started in on our message today. Number one is this. If this is your first time here or your second time here and you have never gotten a little welcome kit from us, Elliot and Katie are here, and they want to get one in your hand. So it, t- it kind of gives you an idea of, of, of uh, our, the DNA of our church, stuff that goes on in our church and where we're at. So if, if it is your first time or if you just want to have one of these, if you'd raise your hand and they'll get it to you, number one. Number two is this. You're going to see on the screen some pictures from past uh, Thanksgiving events that we have done probably, I think, about four years now. M2540, and some of you are new here and you don't really know what M2540 is, but it is, a, it is our street ministry focused primarily on unsheltered uh, homeless folks, but but that's not that that's not all. It's just really people that are living in poverty, um, that are just struggling, having a tough time. And so we we're out every Monday night in the streets, serving about 125 to 150 meals, hot meals, um, sharing the gospel, providing life's necessities from uh, hygiene products, sleeping bags, tents, and so forth. Uh, Julio Hernandez leads this ministry. It's an incredible ministry. And on Thanksgiving, and we've done this about four years in a row, we partner with Highland Community Church, and we use uh, our new building is right behind uh, Highland Community, our new M2540 building. Kitchen's not quite done in our building, so we're using Highland Community's facilities, and we'll, uh, we'll feed about 600 uh, in the neighborhood of 600 folks, and we'll, we'll have clothes to give out, Bibles, um, and more than anything, we're, we're, we're sharing the gospel and praying with folks and loving on the folks in the streets. And so that is uh, the Wednesday before Thanksgiving, and we still need volunteers for that. It's a big deal. To, that, that is a huge opportunity. And so you can sign up. You can go to M2540 uh, on Facebook. You can go over here to the Connections desk and sign up. You can see me. You can see Julio Hernandez. You can see Autumn or Dylan Morgan for more information about that. The last thing I want to tell you about, and you heard Richard talking about Wednesday night, the, uh, the, the video welcome was, was done about a week ago, but since then, he was talking about the Wednesday gathering this Wednesday, uh, and he said it's $7 a person and a, uh, whatever he said, $25 a, for a family of four or more. But yesterday, somebody called and said, I want to cover Thanksgiving for everybody, So, which is very cool, very, very cool. And so, um, but we still need you to register. We still need you to sign up, and you can do that at the Connections Desk. You can also do it on uh, churchonthetrail.org. You go to the events, and you can sign up there. We really, really need you to do that um, so we can, we ordered the, the food uh, Thursday or Friday last week, but we've got to verify the, the quantity for sure on tomorrow. So if you can go ahead, and you can do it right now if you want but try to do it and still listen to me talking. But do it now, do it tonight, but go, but go ahead and register. So here's the deal, y'all. We are in week three of a walk through the Apostles' Creed. And the Apostles' Creed is not Scripture. We don't hold it up as Scripture. It's not inspired. It's not God-breathed. But it's a, a, the foundational statements of belief uh, that the Protestant church has had for a long time. 
And so we're not, we're not studying the creed, we're studying the scripture that lies beneath, that undergirds and forms the foundation of the creed. And so when I, when I say that, I'm saying it ain't about the creed, it's about the word of God. So I want to get that out there. Uh, last week, Richard talked about, uh, at least began to talk about Jesus. And he began to talk in particular about his identity and who he was. This week, we're going to move into the next the next kind of block, the next kind of section in the creed uh, that Richard began talking about last week. And, and here's where he started. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. Here's where we're going to be today. Suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified and died. This last part that's kind of a little darker and was buried, he descended into hell. We're going to do that next week. But today, today, um, this is a statement about his uh, suffering and his death. So today we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about his death. And in particular, I want to talk about three things. And everybody got, has got to worship God, I hope. But here's the three things we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about our need for the cross. We need it. Our need for the cross, number one. Number two, looking ahead towards the cross. And then number three, Christ's work on the cross. So first is our need for the cross. And for us to even begin to understand uh, what happened on the cross outside of the walls of Jerusalem 2,000 or so years ago, we got to go back to the garden, back way back to the garden. And then we're going to look a little bit at a, at a system that was put in place by the Lord for the Lord's people Israel. And only after looking at those two things and maybe one more thing can we even begin, y'all, to understand what really took place on that cross. So back way up, way, way up, Adam and Eve, they're in perfect relationship with God, Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis 3, their sin wrecked the relationship with God. And because of that fall, because of what happened in Genesis 3, that sin flows right down to me and you in 2019. Paul, the Apostle Paul, noticed what what effect that sin had on us in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 17. And I'm pulling um, some nuggets out of those six or seven verses. And this is what Paul noticed about what happened in the garden. He said, none is righteous. None understand. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. All have become worthless. No one does any good. They use their tongues to deceive. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And the way of peace they have not known. So y'all, that's a sad, sad picture that is painted of mankind. That's a sad picture that is painted of me and you. Now it doesn't mean that we're sitting here and we're all uh, a bunch of axe murderers. But it does mean that you and I are tainted with the sin that came down from Adam and Eve. And then you got the Creator, God, who is holy and righteous and just. And His justice demands that sin be paid for. And yes, Scripture does talk about, in many places, and it says that God is long-suffering, that He is slow to anger. Lots of times, depending on translation, the word is long-suffering. Psalm 86. But you, O Lord, is verse 15, but you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So he's slow to anger. 
and he, and he abounds in steadfast love, covenantal love, and, and he's faithful. He loves us faithfully. But y'all, sin has got to be paid for. Look at Nahum. Anybody ever read Nahum? Probably not. Nahum chapter 1 verse 3. The Lord is slow to anger. He's long-suffering with me and you and great in power. But then he says, and the Lord is by, will by no means clear the guilty. So there's this slow to anger thing, this long-suffering thing, this steadfast love thing. But then there's also this justness issue that dictates that sin has got to be punished. So when you have this delta, this rift, this valley between a holy and a righteous and a just God and me and you, well, that just means that, that you and I are definitely in need. We are in need of something that can, uh, that can bridge that valley, that can bridge that rift that was created uh, from the garden, that was created from the sin of Adam and Eve. And there's this theme that runs through the whole Bible, Old Testament and New. And it's this sort of necessity to see that broken relationship between me and you and God, to see that repaired. Atonement is the word. Atonement. We're going to have about three or four churchy kind of words today. Atonement is the word. But it's a word that is used, uh, it's a word that is used for when a wrong is done to somebody, when that wrong is repaired. It is, it is like Susan wants to make atonement for all the stupid stuff that Ed has done or said. It's that kind of a word. And so God can't just cancel sin without that sin being justly compensated for. If he did, he'd create an injustice in his kingdom. If he did that, y'all, there'd be no difference between the guilty and the not guilty. He, the Lord, would be acting against his very nature. So it is weird. It's kind of weird. Because his love endures forever, Scripture tells us. He's faithful. His love is endless. It knows no bounds. He's gracious. He's merciful. But, but he's also holy and righteous and just. And those things have got to live together in the same place and at the same time. And it seems like that is a conundrum. If God wants to provide forgiveness, and we know that he does, then there has to be an answer. There has to be a solution. He wants to be in a relationship with me and you. We know that from the scripture. He wants to be. It has been his plan from the very beginning to be in a relationship with us. So he chose. And I use the word chose because he's God. He gets to do whatever he wants to do, whenever he wants to do it, and however he wants to do it. He chose atonement to be the tool that he uses to restore that broken relationship. So to illustrate atonement, he instituted a system of offerings shortly after the Hebrews came out of slavery in Egypt. So in the neighborhood of 1,500 uh, years before Christ. As he was creating the nation of Israel, and there were five types of offerings, whole burnt, five kind of categories, whole burnt offerings, peace offerings, cereal offerings, sin offerings, and guilt offerings. And the sin offering was sort of a, a type of guilt offering. And you see the sin offering, and the Hebrew is chata'ah. Y'all say that with me, chata'ah. So you got to kind of have a little Jewish roots to say cha. It's chata'ah, that's sin offering. And you see that in lots of places, but you see it in Exodus 29, 
verse 14, it says, But the flesh of the bull and its skin and its dung you shall burn with fire outside the camp. It is a sin offering. It's a chata'ah. And then in Leviticus chapters 4, 5, and 6, provide uh, the laws for these sin and guilt offerings in crazy detail. How many of y'all love to read Leviticus? Anybody raise their hand? Leviticus spells out, particularly chapters 4, 5, and 6, in super detail how all of that is to be done. And that offering, that sacrifice, provided atonement, the word we talked about a minute ago, provided atonement for, for the Israelite. And it, but it was temporary. But it did provide fellowship with the Lord once again. But it was temporary. How do I know it was temporary? It was temporary because it had to be done over and over and over and over and over again. There was no cleansing of the sin. There was no removal of the sin. There was really just a temporary covering, a temporary appeasement, a temporary satisfaction of the penalty uh, of God's wrath. God said in Leviticus chapter 17, in verse 11, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. A sacrifice in biblical context, a sacrifice is the offering up of something uh, precious for a cause. The offering up of something precious that you love for a reason. And then again, this word atonement means to cover or to satisfy or to take care of an offense that's been committed. So you had this solution that was implemented instituted by God this sacrificial system and that system was in place from about 1500 uh, uh, BC when Israel came out of Egypt until about AD 70 when the temple was destroyed so that's 15 or 1600 years that that system existed day after day after day blood spilled all over the altar in the temple that system was at the very center, it was at the very heart of Jewish life for 1,500 or 1,600 years. And so through that, that almost unending sacrifice of animals, here's what God did. He continued through that to burn into the heart of every man an awareness of their own sin. That system was meant to, to be an age-long picture of the coming sacrifice of a Messiah. It was meant to look forward towards the cross. Those sacrifices, that whole system, pointed towards the Messiah. And then during that time, during that time from about uh, the Exodus forward, you, you had these prophecies, these prophets who were spokesmen for God, these prophecies concerning this suffering Messiah in the Psalms, in Zechariah, in Jeremiah, in Daniel, in Isaiah. All of these were centuries, written centuries, y'all, before Christ was born. In fact, Isaiah wrote about 800 years. That's a long time. Y'all, we read the Bible and we talk about 100 years, 500 years, like it's nothing. 800 years before Christ is born, Isaiah wrote this. Isaiah chapter 53. He's describing somebody. It's the fourth servant song in the book of Isaiah. He's describing somebody. Just listen to what he wrote. Uh, starting in verse 3. 
He was despised and rejected. We esteemed him not. He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Verse 5, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Eight hundred years before Christ. Verse 6, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted like a lamb led to the slaughter. Eight hundred years before Christ. Verse 8, by oppression and judgment he was taken away. He was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Verse 10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. His soul makes an offering for 800 years before Christ. Verse 11, by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Verse 12, he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Y'all, it looks like, it looks like the sacrificial system which would temporarily cover the sin acted, served, was meant to be a training ground for God's people to learn that it took blood to learn that there had to be uh, something given in exchange. And then you had, uh, uh, it looks like the Lord used the, the prophets and used the prophecy to point towards a permanent solution to our sin problem. His soul makes an offering for guilt. Verse 10, he bore the sins of many. He provided for many to be accounted righteous. So, first we got this need. And our need is based on two things. This is not in your, in your uh, worship guide. Write this down. Our need is based on two things. God's character and our sinfulness. That is where our need comes from. God's character, holy, just, righteous, and, and our sinfulness. And then we talked about the Old Testament uh, sacrificial system, which I think probably served two purposes. Number one, I said a minute ago, they temporarily satisfied the penalty for the sin Number one and number two, that whole system, was it served to teach and to train God's people. Now we're going to move into to the third big point today. Christ's work on the cross. Christ's work on the cross. So what did he do? He died on the cross. In real history, under the rule of Pontius Pilate, the rule and the authority of Pontius Pilate, Jesus of Nazareth was beaten and nailed to a cross and died a sure enough real physical death. He was dead physically dead why why what did all of that accomplish what did his death on the cross accomplish i think there were three things that it accomplished number one is this reconciliation reconciliation that's another kind of churchy word but much of romans chapters one two and three are a total indictment on me and you on all of mankind for our depraved nature we looked at that a minute ago when paul wrote in romans three when he wrote, none are righteous, none are good, all that, that, that all, all have sinned, all of that stuff. So the major effect that the fall in the garden had on me and you is that it cracked and put a rift in between me and you and God. It cracked the relationship between man and God. Praise the Lord that the cross fixes that. 
Now, the Greek word that is used for reconciliation, that word has the idea um, of a change in relationship. A change in relationship. So the catastrophic change in relationship between God and man that Adam and Eve brought to the table is rectified with the cross. It's restored. It's reconciled. It's repaired with the cross. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 19, says, In Christ, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Verse 21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So for our sake, God made Christ to be sin who knew no sin. He was the one who knew no sin. So reconciliation, that restoration of that, that relationship. Number one. Number two is this, redemption. Redemption. Simply put, redemption is the purchase back, the buying back of something that had been lost by the payment of a price. It's buying back something, not for free, but buying back something where there is a price to it. Romans chapter 3, verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified or made right by His grace as a gift through the what? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation. We're going to get to that word in a minute too. But put forward as a propitiation by His blood. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 7. For in Him we have what? Redemption through what? Through His blood. We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. First Peter chapter 1, verse 18. You were ransomed with what? With the precious blood of Christ. I could go on and on with the passages and the verses that talk about that. In the 1500s, the king of Scotland passed a law that said you couldn't, you couldn't do certain things in his kingdom. You couldn't do certain things in his country. And some of his men, some of the king's men, found that his mother, the king's mother, had broken some of those new laws. And those men brought uh, the mother to the son, uh, who was the king, right? And they said, your mother has broken the laws. You said that anybody that breaks the law would receive 20 lashes. So the king's in a pickle, right? The king's in a pickle. He had a standard that couldn't change. He had the law. He laid the law down. Can't change the law. The law is the law. There was a penalty that had to be paid. It applied to everybody. His law applied to everybody. But, but, you know, he didn't want the rules, and particularly he didn't want the penalty, the consequences, to apply to his mama. He loved his mama. We all loved, love our mama. If you love your mama, raise your hand. We all love our mama. But how could he keep the king, how could he keep his standard of perfection, how could he keep his standard and still honor and represent and respect and love uh, his mom. How could he display his love to his mother and remain just? That's the question. So the king unbuttoned his shirt and he told his men to whip him. He bent over and he took 20 lashes for his mama. He met the demands of the law and he showed love and mercy and grace to his mama by taking the penalty that she deserved on himself. So here is the deal. Your sin is not going unpaid for. 
The idea that runs through all of these passages and many more is that of a payment is being made for our redemption. The debt against us isn't just canceled. It is fully paid. It's not just written off as a loss. It's fully paid. There's an exchange that's being made. Christ's righteousness for our sin. What an incredible deal that we get. He suffers on the cross for our sin. We don't bear the penalty for the sin. He does. And we get his righteousness. Christ's life, which he willingly surrendered. Don't forget that. He willingly surrendered is the price that's paid. And it is the only price. It is the only currency that is acceptable to a holy God to deliver us from the slavery to sin and the, and the consequences that are eternal. It's the only currency that's acceptable. Y'all, there was a pizza place when I was in college in Athens um, at the University of Georgia who just happened to win yesterday. Way back in the day, way, I, I swore I wasn't going to do that, but there was a pizza place. And, and I'll never forget the first time that I went in, happened to be a Georgia-Auburn game afterwards that we had won too. But I went in this pizza place, I went in this pizza place, and there's a sign over the counter in this pizza place on Broad Street, and it said, in God we trust, all others pay cash. So in other words, this place, they only accepted cash. You couldn't use a check, you couldn't use a credit card, you couldn't use an IOU, you couldn't scribble down and said, I'll pay you later. They only, cash was the only payment that they would accept. The death of Jesus Christ is the only payment that a holy God will accept. So you have redemption, the purchase back. And then third, finally, thing that is accomplished on the cross was another churchy word, propitiation. That was in Romans 3.25, propitiation. Look at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4. It says, for it is impossible for the, impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Back to Romans 3, verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation by His blood. It's a noun. A propitiation. You probably never even heard that word propitiation before. But it is the same word in the Septuagint. It's the same word in Exodus and Leviticus for the lid of and I think there's a picture. Yeah, for the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. It's called the mercy seat. It's the same word. It's the same word. That mercy seat, which was in the Holy of Holies, is where on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would sprinkle and pour blood on the mercy seat. So in verse 25 of Romans 3, it is Christ who is put forward as a propitiation. It is Christ who is put forward as a mercy seat. In propitiation, there's a permanent cleansing, a permanent removal of the sin. There's a placation, there's a satisfaction, there's a total satisfaction of God's wrath in the word propitiation. Look at Romans 8.3. For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering, to be a chata'ah that we talked about a minute ago. In the likeness of sinful flesh, God sent His Son to be a sin offering. The law couldn't do it. The law couldn't do it. 
The death of a bull couldn't do it. The death of a goat couldn't do it. The death of a pigeon couldn't do it. No, no, no. But Jesus Christ, as a sin offering, as a chata'ah, removes our sin as far as the east is from the west, Psalm 103 says. And it satisfies. It satisfies a holy God. Now, I've done this to y'all before, and it's a little awkward, and it's going to be awkward today. Just trust me. Just roll with me. This is going to, it's going to be awkward. I want everybody in this room, I want you to close your eyes. And I don't know where you're at, and I know that lots of us in all kind of different places, you may be in here and you may be a skeptic. You may be in here and you may be, um, you may not believe. You may be Jewish. You may be a Hindu. You may just be an atheist. I don't know. But wherever you are, I really, really, really urge you, roll with me. And if you can't close your eyes, just put your head in your hands and look at the floor. But don't look at me because I want you to visualize in your mind what I'm getting ready to talk about. I really want you, I want to try to paint a picture for you, but I want you to visualize this. All right, fair enough? We're in Jerusalem in the spring of A.D. 33. Dusty roads, you know, desert outside, big gate, big walls around the city. It's A.D. 33. Jesus and his 12 best friends, they come into Jerusalem for Passover. It's a huge holiday. In fact, it was the day that the Passover lamb was to be slaughtered, the day that they came in. And Jesus asked two of his guys, James and Peter or Matthew and Stephen, I don't know, he asked two of his guys, uh, uh, two of his buddies, and they found them a place, a great upper room that was prepared, and it was ready for them to celebrate the Passover. So the 13 of them ate that feast. Jesus knew that something was going on with Judas, which was, who was one of his 12. Something had been going on with Judas for a while, right? But after they ate, Jesus gets up, he ties a little towel around his waist, he gets a basin of water, and he washes his 12 guys' feet. Peter, impetuous, kind of crazy Peter, resisted allowing it because he thought it was beneath Jesus' who he was, that it was beneath him to do that. But Jesus said to Peter, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Now, y'all keep yourself back. Keep your eyes closed. Let me paint this picture. Jesus told them that that was an example. He was a servant, and they should be a servant too. And then Jesus shocked them by saying, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And it was Judas. Judas got up and left because he was the one. After Judas left, Jesus gave the disciples a glimpse of what was to come. He predicted that he was going to be broken and that he was going to be poured out. He was going to take humanity's punishment for sin on himself. He gave each one of them some bread. Take, eat. This is my body, he said. And then he gave them some wine and he said, drink this. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. He warned them that the hour was drawing near and then he comforted them. He told them that he was going to prepare a place for them. What are you talking about, they said. Thomas said, we don't know the way. And Jesus told them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And they began to get it, even if only a little bit, that he 
was the way. That somehow it was through him. And then they sang a song. They're still in the upper room, the 12 of them now, but they sang a song. Perhaps it was a psalm, probably Psalm 115 or 16. And then they headed out for the Mount of Olives. They came to a garden in the Mount of Olives, and that garden was called Gethsemane. Jesus needed to get alone with his father and pray. So he asked Peter and the sons of Zebedee to take a watch while he went and prayed. And he prayed to his father. He said, Abba, Father, Daddy, Daddy, Abba, Father, if it's possible, if there is any way, don't give me this cup of suffering. If there's any way. He said, but Daddy, it is about you. It is not about me. He said, it is about your will, not mine. And as he prayed, an angel from heaven came down and strengthened him because by now he was in absolute total agony. In fact, he was sweating blood. And he finally, he rose and he gathers up his guys and he said, the time has come for me to be handed over to sinful people. Get up, we must go. And in the middle of Jesus talking, he said, look, there's my betrayer, Judas. Judas shows up with a crowd of armed men and he had arranged with those men that the one that he kissed was the man that they needed to arrest. So he greeted Jesus and he kissed him ever so gently on the cheek. And immediately those men seized Jesus to arrest him. And Peter sees this going on and Peter is like, it is go time. And he jumps up and he defended Jesus. He draws his sword out and he swings it like a crazy man and he cuts off one of the guard's ears. And Jesus bends over and he puts the guy's ear back on. And he says, put the sword away, Peter. Don't you get that I could call and ask my father for a thousand angels to protect us and he would just send them just like that. But if I did, how would the prophecies be fulfilled that describe what has got to happen? Jesus just gave himself up. He could whip these guys with a word. He had the power to call down 10,000 angel armies to rescue him, but instead he willingly surrenders in the Garden of Gethsemane in the dark of night. The disciples, they're like, what is going on? And they knew something horrible was happening, and they just ran away to save their own skins. Jesus was left alone with his captors, and they carried him off to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders are waiting, the chief priest, and the scribes and the elders looked for false witnesses so they could have Jesus put to death. And finally they found two who bore testimony against him. Are you not even going to defend yourself? Caiaphas asked him. And Jesus just stayed silent. And finally he asked him, are you the Christ, the Son of God? And Jesus answered, it is as you say. And that flipped out the high priest. The high priest tore his clothes and he said, this is what I've been telling you all about. He speaks blasphemy. We don't even need witnesses. Y'all heard it yourself. You heard the blasphemy yourselves. And the other men there started screaming, He deserves death. Kill him. Crucify him. They spit in his face. They punched him. They beat him. They mocked him. By morning, all of them wanted him dead. They tied him up and they took him to Pilate. Pontius Pilate, who'd been the governor for the last four years. But don't be fooled. Pilate wasn't a friend to the Jews. He ordered soldiers all the time to beat and kill Jewish protesters. But on this Friday morning, the Jewish leaders asked him to judge Jesus as a, as a rebel and as a threat to Caesar. Now Pilate's kind of caught in the middle. If he refuses to condemn Jesus, the Jewish accusers would portray him as no friend of Caesar's, which was a very dangerous public image to have. 
But if he agreed to crucify Jesus, he'd be acting against his own judicial instincts and maybe worse, caving in to the very people that he despised. He needed to question the prisoner himself. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, you say rightly that I am a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world. To bear witness to the truth. So Pilate found no fault in him. But because, and, and it, was, it was Passover, he asked the people if they wanted Jesus freed as a Passover sort of gift to him. But they all screamed, no, 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 not him. We want Barabbas freed. And Barabbas was sure enough a criminal. And so Pilate took Jesus and had him scourged. The soldiers twisted a crown of thorns on his head. And they put a purple robe on him. And they said, hail the king of the Jews. And they beat him with their fists. And Pilate had him led away to be crucified. He was beaten and he was whipped mercilessly. For the Roman execution guards are good at what they did. They knew how to beat a man right up to the point of death without killing him just so he'd have to bear the horror of crucifixion. So he's nailed to the cross between two criminals just outside the, the city walls. And Roman crucifixion was a cruel punishment nailed to a cross by wrists and feet. It was an excruciating, it was slow, and it was a very public way to die. And the victim's groaning became a morning's entertainment for people that were watching. The people that passed by, including the chief priests and the soldiers, they hurled insults at him. They mocked him. Save yourself. Get yourself down off that cross and maybe we'll believe they hollered at him. Even in the middle of all of that chaos and all that hard, Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. For those that are made to suffer crucifixion, death itself was the only resolution. So Jesus waited that day along with two other victims and a crowd of onlookers for death to overcome him. But before that, however, a deeper pain was coming. A pain that went far beyond the nails in his feet and his wrists. The labored breathing or the crown that had been, had been puncturing his head. God poured out humanity's rightful punishment for sin upon his own son. At noon, the sky went dark and it stayed dark till 3 o'clock. Jesus cries out, Eloi, Eloi, lamach sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Somebody takes a sponge and they fill it with sour wine. They stick it on the end of a reed and they, they offer it to him to drink. And so when Jesus had received that sour wine, here's what he said. It is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Y'all can open your eyes. Y'all, one word to telestai. If you had not opened your eyes, you can open your eyes. To telestai, that means it is finished. Ancient receipts, papyri receipts for taxes have been recovered, and the word to telestai is written across them. It means paid in full. Those are crazy significant words on his lips. And he said, it is finished. He didn't say, I am finished. He said, it is finished. And what he meant by that was his redemptive work that he was born for had been completed. Y'all remember 2 Corinthians chapter 5, for your sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. For your sake. Not for his sake. For your sake. 
for you in 2019. He'd been made sin and had suffered the penalty of God's justice that sin deserved for your sake and for my sake. What started y'all in the garden, it begins to reach a pinnacle on that cross. And here's what I tell you. It provided reconciliation. It provided redemption. It provides healing. It provides uh, uh, repair to, to, to the damage that was done in the garden. And He wants that relationship with you. And you ain't got to pay for it. It's paid for. It ain't free. It's free to you. But it wasn't free to Him. So here's what I'm telling you. It's just so simple, y'all. I repent of my sin and I believe. I believe that He died on the cross, that it provided healing for me, that it provided restoration for me, that it provided reconciliation for me, that it provided redemption for me. I believe that. That is all it is. I repent of my sin and I believe that He died on that cross and took care of it. That's all. If that happened to you today, if you want that to be your life today, I want you to pray with me. Lord, today is the day that I, I repent of my sin. Lord, today is the day that I repent of my sin and I believe. And that I believe that you died on that cross. I believe that you died on that cross to save me. And I invite your Holy Spirit to live in me. And it is in Jesus' name, amen.